Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Katrina Cliff. Katrina is the founder of KC Communications, a marketing and PR firm based in Huddersfield, West Yorkshire. Katrina, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Hi Scott, pleasure to be here. It's a real pleasure having you join us Katrina. Um, The purpose of this discussion is to first and foremost establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in by sort of taking that word leader aside and considering it in a little bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Um, this is it's probably a, a word that I've, I've probably struggled with over the past six years because I never set out to be a leader. Um, when I started my business, it was very much about being a freelance uh, operator and mm. grew into being a leader. So it's definitely evolved over the years. Um, but ultimately, a leader is about bringing a group of people together with that shared vision and that shared ambition to help achieve those goals and and we at KC Communications very much have kind of a shared vision about what we want to achieve both from a business perspective but also personal perspectives as well Um, and me being that leader within that organisation is about helping us all to get to to where we want to be and so very much is probably more of a, a facilitator rather than a leader as such. Mm. And of course, you spent, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Katrina, around about nine years working in certain managerial roles in services and communications with various names before founding KC Communications in 2014, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Um, what was that sort of eureka moment when you thought that the path forward for you is going to be going into business for yourself and being a business leader? Um, could you sort of pinpoint that at all? Um, so I've spent a couple of, well, probably about six years specifically working for an organization that works globally and um, I worked remotely so I worked from home but spent a lot of time traveling internationally and for for me to then kind of move my career on and um, take that next step it would have meant kind of a lot of upheaval going kind of back into into another business locally Mm. and I just felt now now's the time really to kind of do my own thing and take that kind of knowledge that I'd learned and how, more specifically, how could I support businesses locally to me with the kind of expertise and knowledge that I have to help them to grow. Um, So, yeah, ultimately, you know, in in Huddersfield, there wasn't a lot of businesses kind of doing what I offered at that time. So Mm. at that point, it was very much kind of outsourced marketing support um, and, you know, we, we work with a variety of businesses sort of for professional services, manufacturing, um, and for them to get the level of expertise that I was able to bring, they would have been paying significant amounts of money to have that in-house. Um, and, yeah, I, I just feel it was kind of right, just right sort of moment in time, but it, it was definitely a week holiday where I had that unique moment that I needed to go ahead and do this. Mm-hmm. 
And as you said, it's come quite some way since that moment. Um, you're working not yeah. just within the manufacturing industry, but also with uh, people working in health tech, professional services and various other areas. Um, yeah. These, of course, are all sectors that have been hit by the COVID-19 pandemic that's ongoing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, from your point of view, Katrina, just how sort of difficult has it been for you to sort of navigate the last uh, few weeks and months? Um, as lockdown hit, so we, as a business ourselves, we, we were very adaptable to it. So everybody had laptops in our organization. Mm. Most of the kind of tools and everything that we use are, are in the cloud. So for us to have to kind of go into sort of full remote working, um, wasn't as, as hard as it maybe would have been for a lot of other businesses. What was the most challenging was having to adapt a significant number of client marketing strategies as um, various sort of lockdowns were enforced, especially for those businesses that weren't able to carry on operating, especially in sort of the manufacturing uh, sectors. Um, but what you know, considering what we could do for them to keep, you know, making sure that their profile was raised and they were in the forefront of their audience's minds, ready for the, that time when they were able to pick up operations again. So, yeah, just completely having to scrap everything that we were doing and change everything all in one go for upwards of about 20 different clients. So, Mm. yeah, the the first few weeks were were quite stressful. Um, We were very lucky that none of our clients um, paused their retainers. They carried on um, using our services, which, you know, goes to show that they really value um, and see the benefit of what marketing can do for, for helping grow their businesses and raise their profile. And of course, thinking about sort of just how challenging a time and sensitive a time it's been for mm-hmm. many people, I suppose you've also had to be adaptable as a business leader as well, because people react to different circumstances differently, let alone a crisis such as this. So with some, yeah. of course, there's sort of that um, little bit more ease to continue working, whether it's on site, whether new safety procedures or whether it's adapting to working from home. Mm-hmm. And then with others, there might just be that little more sort of apprehension and worry that you have to look at. Um, how, yeah. how, how's, it, how's it been from a mental health perspective, Katrina, just managing this period as well? Because I can imagine there've been a few challenges in that area. Yeah, massively. And and coming back to sort of the, the whole thing of being a leader, you know, the first four weeks were definitely the most most challenging. You know, I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea what my clients, how they would be impacted. And ultimately, you know, if they might need to pause or even completely cancel um, what they do with us. It was really hard to sort of navigate that and, and keep, keep the morale amongst my team as well you know obviously they they had concerns both what it may be meant for their jobs they were seeing a lot of their friends uh, being furloughed or laid off so trying to keep that kind of positive mindset to keep that uh, momentum going um, and obviously sort of addressing needs of, of working slightly differently so I'm I'm the only person in my team that that's got children and you know I, I did pretty much have to leave my kids to just kind of crack on um, with homeschool in the first few weeks because I was trying to kind of steer the ship. Mm. Um, but as kind of time's gone on, I'm able to work a bit more flexibly around them. But also, you know, just because my colleagues don't have children, you know, I'm, I've been very considerate to, you know, their, their overall sort of family life and their mental health and, and so on. So we've, we've definitely kind of adapted times that we have our daily check-ins so we have them slightly later in the morning to allow 
those people who want to start a little bit later and maybe work better, um, you know, by starting later. Um, but similarly, you know, those who want to start earlier and finish earlier, again, we've sort of adapted our kind of afternoon check-ins as well to, to make that work for them. Um, so, yeah, we just have to really keep those lines of communication open. And for our clients specifically, you know, just being there as kind of um, an ear, a listening ear, really. So allowing them to kind of talk through their, you know, trials and frustrations. And, you know, we, we've got a very good relationship with all our clients. And we, we definitely don't feel like we're an outsource um, support. Mm. network that you know we we work really closely with uh, kind of the managerial level uh, with the businesses that we work with and, and most of them are kind of owner manager businesses as well so you know it, it's good to, for them to kind of have an outlet as well to talk about you know the challenges of dealing with you know their teams and and how you know we've approached it um and also just by having those chats it, it really helps us as well to maybe identify how we need to adapt their strategies to kind of help them navigate such challenging times. So we've, we've got a couple of clients in the manufacturing sector that have to completely shut down for a number of weeks. Um, but we regularly sort of kept in touch with them as to kind of what was going on, what was coming up, so that we knew exactly when to strike with, with the relevant activity. And thinking about, of course, um, what you mentioned just a little bit earlier on about the fact that people look to you as the leader of the business for that sort of morale and direction as and when they Mm -hmm. need it. I suppose that comes with some pressure because when you're the one at the top of the tree, as it were, there isn't anybody above you in that hierarchical business ladder to really look to, is there? So when you do need that little bit of inspiration, when where do you tend to look for that? Um, definitely from sort of other peers and friends and that that are in, in sort of similar situations. So I think with everything that's gone on, I know kind of in, in the lead up to this has been kind of a big a big thing about kind of employee well being and employee mental health. And I think I do think small business owners in particularly do get overlooked when it, it comes to that. Um, you know, we, we have a lot on kind of our shoulders to have to, to manage and deal with. And I think this was kind of the first time where everyone kind of stopped and thought, you know, small business owners have a lot to deal with right now and a lot of challenges to face. Um, but my team have been, they've been massively supportive as well. You know, they've, they've considered the challenges that I'm having to, to go through and consider for their benefit and obviously, you know, my own personal challenges with family and everything. So they've been, you know, a fantastic source of support. Um, you know, the clients, we've, you know, we've got clients that we've been working with for five, six years now. We've got really great client retention. Even just having honest conversations with them has been really, really helpful. And then, you know, like I said, you know, friends that I've made along the way, um, whilst being in business, there's a number of sort of business groups that I'm, I'm involved with and, and having kind of almost kind of Zoom peer support group sessions where we're all talking about the current challenges that we're facing that will allow us, you know, that allows us to kind of chat about, you know, how we might approach things or, you know, the challenges that they're going through that maybe I'm not going through right now but could be coming up and understanding how they've approached it so that when I have come to that stage, it, it's been a lot easier to handle. So 
so yeah, keep, keeping lines of communication open across mm. various different channels has been absolutely vital. And it's been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, this uh, pandemic and especially the lockdown mm-hmm. period. But this week on the show, Katrina, we are trying to find the silver lining to what has been enormously dark and dense cloud over society. So can you yeah. tell us about any positives that you or your company have managed to take from the last few months? Yeah. So just before all this kind of lockdown happened, we were in the process of uh, recruiting a number of new staff. We actually... We had one start two weeks before lockdown, one start four days before lockdown. And actually what this whole lockdown has done is, has really allowed us to bond much better, in my opinion, as a team. Um, everyone's really been, has really had each other's back with everything that's been going on. And I think there's been a lot more, been a lot more mindful as to how people are handling things personally rather than just looking at working life. So that has definitely been a positive outcome. Um, and on the whole, we've actually done really well through lockdown. We won um, a new client within the first week of kind of being in this sort of enforced situation. We've had a significant kind of uptick in uh, new business inquiries that have been coming through. And we've won a couple of other uh, projects as a result of that. Um, and we were just in, we're just into our kind of, End of Q, Q4 at the moment, and our revenues have actually increased 30% month on month in, in Q4 versus Q3. Um, so we, we're actually looking to end our financial year really strong, and actually Q4, even with it being in the midst of this pandemic, has, has been really good, and that means that we're going into our new financial year in a really good, strong position. Um, and as a result of this, we have um, recruited an apprentice um, and we are also in the process of recruiting for a more senior level role as well so you know we we have you know thankfully experienced positives as a result of this um, but that is in part down to how my team have come together you know worked hard seen opportunities and that's helped us to ultimately be in the position that we're in now certainly seems that the lockdown experience has really brought you together and galvanised the uh, the business, Katrina. Yeah. Um, and thinking now about what the sort of next 12 to 18 months might bring with the challenges of the uh, the new normal on the horizon, what do you think yeah. is next for you and what is next for KC Communications and what do you really hope to achieve as a company during this time? So our ambition for the next financial year is to increase our revenues by 60%. So it is a very ambitious target, especially with everything that's been going on. Um, but we are definitely, you know, starting off that financial year strong, and I'm confident that we can get as near to that figure as possible. Um, for the team, as I mentioned, we've, we're recruiting an apprentice, so it's very much going to be about, you know, embedding that individual within the organisation, developing them to help them. Um, get more involved, more hands-on that then allows us to um, to bring in sort of further further work and, and also look to recruit further. Um, we always had a flexible way of working anyway. So I think from the feedback from the team, they want to do a mix of being in the office and a mix working from home. Um, so, you know, that, that will continue. But we're looking definitely to 
kind of grow our remit within the definitely the manufacturing and the sort of health tech um, side of, of things. You know, there where we've had some really great results over the past twelve months. Um, so yeah, looking to kind of be, in, increase our, our remit within those areas and and just keep growing. You know, we we also um, we last year hosted a, a local business week to help the local economy, and um, that we did completely in our own time we're looking to run that again this year to really support um, the Huddersfield business community to kind of get back on its feet so it's going to be quite a hectic 12 months ahead um, but we're all feeling really motivated after the past few months we've come out of it strong relatively unscathed um, so yeah it's building from that for us. That sounds like there's plenty to get your teeth into over the course of the next few months, Katrina, and let's hope there'll be some positive news uh, to come on the horizon. And in fact, given how informative it's been having you join us, I think it would be wonderful to have you back on the show in future just to see how things are getting on. That'd be great. Thank you. It would be fantastic, Katrina. I've really enjoyed having you um, on the show with us uh, today. It's been hugely insightful to hear, of course, your views on what's been going on and also your take on leadership as a whole. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're still not quite sure how things are going to pan out. It's a lot of speculation at the moment. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive from here. Definitely. I was speaking to Katrina Cliff today, founder of KC Communications in Huddersfield, West Yorkshire. And most importantly to those tuning in, do continue to look after yourselves and be sensible. Look after others because it really does make a real difference in saving lives. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most renowned politicians of his generation, holding numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a 
politician who who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the, public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people 
who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was 
all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your 
thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. 
and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with 
ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, 
um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.